All right, we're in Luke chapter 1 again. One of the sweetest words that we talk about often is redemption. The work of God to redeem a people for himself. We we can talk about terms like atonement and adoption and reconciliation, redemption, and we can sometimes talk about them sort of clinically. We're trying to define them. We want to be precise. We want to be careful. These are theological terms, and so we want to get them right. But there is in this word redemption just something that is so sweet and rich that should bring joy to our hearts. It really rests on the basis of God ransoming sinners, that he rescues them, that he pays the ransom to free sinners from the bondage of sin. Jesus in Mark 10, 45 said he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And the word ransom in the Greek is the idea to loose or to, to, to set free. It is to buy out of bondage. There is a high cost to our freedom in Christ. Romans 6, 6 says redemption is necessary so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It goes on in Romans 6, Paul writes in verse 17, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. It's really hitting that language of slavery and freedom that we are in bondage to sin. We are held in its grip and Jesus has come to set us free. We often read about the practice of slavery. We grieve the practice of slavery. And yet, as a, as a free people, it's still hard for us sometimes to fathom the experience of being enslaved. And yet, God's word wants us to understand clearly that all of us come into life conceived in sin and enslaved to sin and in need of being ransomed, in need of being redeemed. Many Jews in Jesus' day stumbled on this idea of being set free because they didn't see themselves as being captives. And so when Jesus speaks in John chapter 8 of the truth setting people free, the response that he gets, verse 33 of John 8, the crowd answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They are incredulous. What are you talking about us needing to be free from? We are not enslaved, but they did need to be set free. And there were some first century Jews who understood, who had meditated on the Old Testament. They had studied the law and the prophets, and they understood that redemption is something that has been part of the theme of Scripture from the very beginning. Man's, God's creation, man's fall, and the need for redemption, for God to rescue and to save people. And there are these first century Jews who come to understand that God is a redeeming God. You could look back in the Old Testament and see him delivering his people literally out of Egypt and out of slavery, but that's a a foreshadowing of something greater. And so we're in Luke chapter 1 this morning, and we're going to be talking about redemption. We're continuing our Advent series, Worship the King. We looked at Mary's hymn of praise last week, the Magnificat, and we're going to pick up on another portion. That that section, we looked at mercy and might there in, in Mary's Magnificat. This morning, we're going to look at a section starting in verse 67. It is Zechariah's hymn of praise, and it's often called the Benedictus just as Magnificat is taken from the first spoken word of Mary in her hymn of praise. Benedictus is the first word that Zechariah spoke, which is blessed, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. That word blessed, the Latin is Benedictus, and so that's where it gets that name. Zechariah is blessing 
God. He is speaking of God's greatness. He is magnifying God and, and, and just echoing his praise for God. Zechariah is a Jewish priest. Older man, he has been in the priesthood throughout his life. It would come down through the line of, of Levi. So he has been undoubtedly a student of the Old Testament, of the law and the prophets. He is steeped in, in understanding and knowledge. He has seen the Lord and his work. And Zechariah has been given faith by God to believe that there is more to come. That all that the prophets anticipated in terms of redemption is still to be unfolded. And so he's still looking for more. And that is the, this theme that we're going to see in his, in, in his hymn of praise. God is sending a redeemer. A strong redeemer who will deliver his people. And then we're going to also see in this section from whom God is redeeming people and then for what he is redeeming. From whom, who are the enemies from whom God is redeeming and for what purpose does God redeem? And Zechariah covers those things here in this hymn. Uh, like Mary's hymn, this one is here in scripture to help us in our worship. We can talk about redemption, and we can talk about mercy and might, and we can sort of intellectually understand those things and, and be able to rehearse them and speak about them accurately, but the, the, the calling in Scripture is that we would also respond with worship, that we would read these things, and much like Zechariah, we would respond with glad-hearted praise because of what God has done. So let, let's set the scene. Zechariah is the first person introduced in this whole nativity story in the book of Luke. He's in verse 5. He's a Jewish priest. He's married to Elizabeth. Luke 1 verse 6 says they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Zechariah has, has been involved in the, the temple rituals, the prescribed sacrifices throughout his life. He has taken part in priestly duties and some teaching duties and, and the responsibilities that a priest was commanded to do. Um, but, but Zechariah also understands that the, the sacrifices that he has been a part of, of presenting to God at the altar there in Jerusalem are foreshadowing, that, that they are incomplete, if you will, that, that they, the, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs is required and he is doing as God has prescribed, but they are not enough, that there must still be a sacrifice that actually takes away, that actually covers sin, that redeems the sinner. And, and Zechariah is looking forward to that redemption that provides forgiveness of sins. It, it, it's already told us here, he and his wife have served faithfully, they have been righteous, they have lived life well, even as life has thrown them curves, not the least of which, as he describes here, is their childlessness. They are older in years now, there is the opportunity for childbearing, that window seems to have closed, and it has been difficult in that sense. However, let's pick up in Luke 1, verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of his people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. 
And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is, a, this is the turning point in Zechariah's life. This is monumental. He has been called to enter the holy place in the temple unique opportunity. It is the place just before the veil, not quite the Holy of Holies, but it is the place where the incense is that, that's signifying that, that aroma going up from the incense, signifying the prayers of the people. So while they are outside praying, he burns the incense and that's showing the aroma of the sweet fragrance of people praying to the Lord and worshiping him. And suddenly there is an angel and it tells us that as is often the case when angels appear, the human response is fear. There's a sense of what have I done? Why is this happening? And so he responds in fear and the angel gives him a sense of calm. And he will now, the angel will now explain as, as we've begun to read that you, you're going to have a child even in your old age. And, and, and Zechariah is astonished, astonished to the point of skepticism. Because he even responds with a kind of, how can this be since we are old? And, and shows sort of a momentary weakness of faith to the point that the angel says, because you disbelieved what I have said, you're going to lose the capacity to speak. You will lose your ability to speak as a consequence of that lapse in his faithfulness. It probably also extends to his hearing, as we'll see when we read down in verse 62, that they are signing to him to get him to understand what they're saying. So Zechariah is now silenced, but God's promise stands. Zechariah returns home to Elizabeth to await the birth of their son, John. Look at verse 57, Luke 1, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all of their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So the son is born. Zechariah and Elizabeth now have a, a, a baby boy, and he is named John. It is only after Zechariah fulfills all that God called him to, not only to wait on the birth of the son, but to name him John once he is named, then John's ability to speak returns. And it's almost as if nine months of pent-up pondering and meditating and thinking about that encounter with the angel and the promise that came with that, all of that has now come to bear and, and, and Zechariah is loosed. He is able to speak and he begins to bless God. He begins to pour forth with just this passionate worship of God for what God has done. If you think about this again, this Jewish priest who has been told nine months earlier, had been given this promise from the angel, he's now had all of this time to meditate on what does it mean that his son will prepare the way for the Lord? 
his son will be the one to go before the Messiah. At, at its essence, what, what that means to Zechariah is it's happening. God's unfolding plan of redemption that we have been waiting for is now happening. And it's happening here in, in, within my family, and it's happening in my lifetime, and I'm going to see it happen. I'm going to see it begin to unfold. Not only does he come back with the, the, the news from the angel, but then, of course, three months later, Elizabeth's relative Mary comes and says what the Lord has done for her and how she has conceived, how a virgin has conceived, and she is with child, and the promise that she has been given. And so Zechariah has had these months to ponder that his son will be the prophet who will go directly before the Savior. There have been prophets who came before, but his son will now be the one to lead the way. And so for months, he has been silently contemplating these things and perhaps in his mind rehearsing what that moment would be like and what he might say in that moment. Some of this, we, commentators wondered, you know, is some of this sort of pre-written in Zechariah's mind? Clearly it comes from the Spirit, but has he, has he sort of formed these thoughts that we're about to read as he's been thinking and praying and worshiping God quietly for these months? But it's not just the nine months. The reality is Zechariah understands that he has been in a long line of generations that have been waiting for this. Generations have come and gone anticipating the sending of the Messiah. It has been 400 years since God has spoken through a prophet. Four centuries. Think about that for us, right? The 16, 1700s? I can do math. 1700s? How far back that is, that, that nothing, that, there has been none who have come forward and say, this is the word of the Lord that God has now given me to, to speak to you for a nation that has expected God to speak to them. And so God has been silent. And at the end of the last book in the Old Testament, and chronologically what would be last, in Malachi chapter 4, the prophet says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. God at the end of the Old Testament has said, this is coming. This is coming. The, the dawn of righteousness. There is coming a redeemer to rescue you who will release you from under the, the wrath of those who oppose you and in fact will defeat those who oppose you, will crush them under your feet. Righteousness will rise to, to save those who fear me and at the same time it will cast down God's enemies. They have lived on that promise. And they have waited for the fulfillment of that promise. Promise of redemption. God to crush the oppressors and the ones who've enslaved and to lift up his people. And, and, and there is no doubt that Zechariah knows that it has been centuries that they have waited. 
since that time. Generations have come and gone. The Jewish people have experienced Alexander the Great and his control. They've now fallen under the reign of the Roman Empire. It, these have been difficult days. These have been dark days, days when they've, they've not always been faithful in their obedience to the Lord, and they've struggled, and they've struggled with this being such a silent era and not hearing from prophets. So as an Old Testament priest who has studied this, the covenant promises and the, the promises of Isaiah and the other prophets, Zechariah is now able to say, it's happening. All that God had said is now being unfolded right before our eyes. And, and my son will be the one to go before the Messiah. And it begins to unfold. And, and so that's, all of that leads up to this this hymn of worship that he has been contemplating for nine months this day when this son is born and he is named John and he is now able to speak and give praise. And so look at verse 67. Let's just read through this. His father Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in righteousness, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." And he shifts in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. We often note that Greek grammar, as the New Testament is written in Greek, that, that Greek grammar is different. And, and this is one of those places, verses uh, 68 down through verse 70, that whole song is one continuous sentence in the Greek. Uh, there's, there's, we struggle with understanding Greek punctuation sometimes. We're going by verb placement and all that kind of thing. This is just one continuous sense. We'll, we'll break it up into to three points I'll give you this morning. One is that the first is that God has sent a redeemer. God has sent a strong, mighty redeemer to deliver his people. Secondly, we'll look at from whom he rescues his people. That, that deliverance is from an enemy. We'll talk about that. And then the last thing is why. For what purpose does God send his son to redeem his people? Zechariah starts with his heart just overflowing because he is seeing God do what God promised going all the way back to Abraham and to David. He is referencing covenants that God has made and he is recognizing now that God is sending the Redeemer to rescue his people. It's clearly drawing back on Old Testament teaching. When he speaks of this one being raised up as a horn of salvation there in verse 69. He's using Old Testament imagery. It was the idea not of the horn that is blown, but the horn of the ram, the animal horn, the, the point of, of power where that animal defeats its enemies by striking them with its horn. And what he's saying is this horn of salvation is God is now concentrating all of the, the power of his work of salvation in, in this moment, in this person, in this one who has come. God has raised up a mighty one who will save and redeem his people, and he is from the line of David. 
1 Corinthians 1.24 describes Jesus as the power of God for the salvation of his people. Isaiah promises a coming servant who he will, we will refer to as mighty God. Jesus is to come with strength to defeat his enemies, and he is from David's line. That, that's how we can sort of make a break in this song in the sense that he's talking about Jesus from verses 68 down through 75, and, and then in verse 76 when he says, and you, child, he's talking about John, because he's talking about when he's raised in the line of David. That is not his son. His son is from the Levitical line, the, the, the line of Levi, the priesthood. This one that he's talking about is from the line of David. He is, he is royalty. He is king. He will inherit the promise that God made to David of a king that will be on his throne forevermore. But in verse 73, he speaks back to the covenant made with Abraham, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. That's all the way back to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, as God is making his covenant with Abraham in which he vows that childless Abraham will have ancestors that are as numerous as the stars in the sky, more than Abraham would ever be able to count. And God makes that promise to Abraham certain through the birth of Isaac. And then calls on Abraham to take Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him, his beloved son, his, his only son. And he is to take him and he is to sacrifice him, this child of promise. And in Genesis 22, God tests Abraham's faith in that way. And by faith, Abraham obeys until the point that he is to sacrifice Isaac and God intervenes and provides the ram in the thicket, but also Abraham understands God will provide the lamb. God even said that to Isaac on their way up to the mountain when Isaac asked where the sacrifice was. God, God will provide the lamb. That, those promises to Abraham, promises of descendants, promises of being a blessing to all nations through your descendants, the, the promise of a redeemer, of, a, of a, a sacrificed lamb, all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. Every nation on earth is to be blessed through Abraham's line, through the coming of the lamb. He will be the sacrifice God requires. He will be the strong and perfect redeemer. One other thing just to, to really note about Zechariah as he's saying these things. When he says, um, verse 68, God has visited, God has redeemed, God has raised up, God has spoke, verse 72, uh, verse 70, verse 72, to show the mercy and to remember his holy servant. All, all of those in the Greek are what's called aorist tense. Aorist tense means completed action. Generally, that's how the aorist tense is used. We know that he's talking about Jesus who is still three months from being born, and yet he is speaking with certainty about these things. This is what we'd call a prophetic aorist, which is the idea that, yes, this is still to come, but it's viewed as certain. It is viewed as fulfilled because this is the promise of God. There's history to it. God has visited and redeemed his people. We can go back and see that in the rescue from Egypt. But he's also speaking prophetically of how God is coming to redeem his people through Jesus, and he is saying it with absolute certainty that these things will be accomplished as God has promised. For Zechariah, the time of God's salvation had come. This visitation, like I said, if you'll, you'll see that language of God visiting his people, um, latter part of Genesis on into Exodus, when it talks about God will come and visit his people as they are in Egypt, and he will take them up out of that land and bring them into the land that he has promised. Um, and, and, and so it's already speaking of visitation, 
in terms of God coming to rescue his people, to redeem them. And so when Zechariah uses that in verse 68, that God has visited his people, he's not just speaking of the history of this, but he is anticipating what is happening even now. That God, in coming to his people, is bringing a redeemer to rescue his people from their enemies, to defeat his enemies. So that's the first part. He's sending a strong and promised redeemer. Now the question is, from whom are they being redeemed? Verse 71 says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74 reiterates this, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. God would deliver his people from their enemies, from, from the hand of those who hated them. Without a doubt, any first century Jew, at least part of the concept of God rescuing at this moment, as, the, as they hear this, as they think of God rescuing, at least part of that is a political liberation. There, there is some measure here, some form of God freeing us from this, this Roman rule. There, there was always this lingering hope that in their lifetime, God would do what they had seen him do before in rescuing them out from under Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. To be sure, first century Jews are not captives in the same way. They are not slaves. That's why they say that to Jesus. We're, we're not enslaved. We're free people. But there's also a certain degree of, of hardship, measure of bondage, in, in the sense that they are very much under Roman rule. They have freedom to to worship and to work and to generally live as they please. But they do so with the awareness that there is always a contingent, a significant contingent of Roman soldiers based in Jerusalem who are there just in the, in the sense that these Jewish people ever decide that they're going to try to take charge. That's going to be crushed. And there's Roman taxation that goes on that, that the Jews despise because it's heavy taxation to support Rome. And, and in addition, the Jews of that era also knew that their religious freedom was sort of a tempered freedom. It was a freedom that had been delegated to them by Rome and could just as easily be withdrawn by Rome. It really depended on the whim of the emperor, and at least two emperors had signed off on exemptions for the Jews that as long as they were a loyal people, they could go ahead and worship in this sort of odd, monotheistic, one-god sort of way that they worshipped, and, and they would be left alone. But the understanding always was, was that if some other emperor came along and didn't like that idea, that they could lose that. They, they understood that their ability to worship was something that was just sort of given as exemption. Even their synagogues, the, the Roman law treated them as learning centers to get around the idea that they were sort of religious establishments because they all understood that worship throughout the Roman Empire was about deities. It was about the Greek gods. It was about the emperor and worship of the emperor. And it was not this isolated sort of worship that the Jews had of one God. And, and so they were at that time worshiping as they were allowed, but not as the Roman Empire prescribed. And all the while, they know that that could easily end. There had been expulsions of Jews from Rome that had taken place and would still take place because there were times when the Romans just didn't like certain things that the Jews did, and they, they pushed back on them. In areas outside of Jerusalem, uh, the Jews tended to, to be in tighter neighborhoods because they, they understood the, the threat from those around them who thought that they were different and worshipped different and didn't like them for it. So this hope for a redeemer is at least in part the idea of some kind of physical rescue, that there will be some release from under the Roman Empire. If you have any question about the, that, that tension that existed, you just flash, flash forward past the life of Christ to A.D. 70, 
when the Jews tried an uprising against Rome and Jerusalem is crushed and the temple is destroyed. And that's what they were living on the edge of all of this time. And so there's this idea that a redeemer who would rescue them from Roman rule. Zechariah knew that. And I suspect that's in mind as he's saying this, but unlike many of the Jews of his era, Zechariah also understood that kings and armies were enemies, but there was a greater enemy to be feared. Look at verse 76. Speaking to his son now, he says, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun, sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the part of the, the, the hymn where John, uh, Zechariah pivots to John and, and to focusing on John's role as the last prophet before the coming of the Messiah. And he says, and you, child. And he tells us the heartbeat of John's message. You, child, will proclaim the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. Your message will be to proclaim salvation and rescue from sin, release of people from darkness, and bringing them into light. You will show them that this one who is coming will bring the path of peace so that they will no longer face this great enemy that is before them. Whatever would become of Rome or any other persecutors of God's people does not change the fact that all of humanity shares in common one common enemy, sin. We are all conceived in sin. We are born in sin. We are sinners from birth. We are hostile to God from, from the minute we start, and we are in need of being rescued from our sin, of being delivered from the penalty of that sin, which is the judgment of God, which is death. And we all have that common enemy. We are all slaves to sin. He mentions here that... John, this one that you, you go before, he will bring the knowledge of salvation to his people. John, uh, John is the only, the gospel writer John is the only other one to mention the word salvation. He does so when he's recording Jesus' encounter in John 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well. Luke is the one who develops this word salvation a number of times in his gospel and then on into the book of Acts where he uses it frequently to describe what it is that's being preached. In, in Jesus... God is raising up a strong horn of salvation. God is bringing the power of salvation. Zechariah now says, John, you will go before Jesus to give knowledge of that salvation. You think about it, and we jump forward to John's ministry, Zechariah's son, John, and he's preaching. What does he call the Jewish people to do when he is out in the wilderness and they are beginning to come out to him and he is there to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah? Matthew chapter 3 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and what did he command them to do? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not, not prepare to celebrate, not gird yourself up. Repent is the first thing that he says because, because John understands that preparing the way for the Messiah means calling people to the awareness of their own sin. You need this Messiah. 
and you think you just need him for rescue from Rome or from some other oppressors, I'm here to tell you that the issue is your sin. And, and, and he's calling them to repent. And when the scribes and Pharisees push back, he refers to them here in the same context as a brood of vipers. It is their evil that he is concerned about, and he is urging them to repentance. So much so then that when Jesus does appear, and he's coming to John... John chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and John said, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. So, so John is not sent to prepare the nation for a political liberation. He does not say, The king is coming, let's round up the armies, let's get all of the troops. Let's gird up our courage. The battle's about to begin. Instead, he speaks very personally to the people and says, you need to repent of your sin because the Lamb of God who redeems, who takes away the sin of the world, he has come. John is proclaiming that the enemy that Jesus came to confront and rescue his people from is sin and death. It is the very same enemy that you and I came into life facing. The, the, the same enslavement to sin. And so when Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 says to his audience that don't fear one who can only kill the body, but the one who has power over your soul, rather fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He is referring back to the judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God against sin and the punishment of death that comes with that and saying that's that's where your enemy lies. It's in the sin that is within your own body, within your own spirit and and. God must redeem you from that. If you are watching online or here this morning and you are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, if, if you are thinking about one day how you will stand before the God who made you, who created this universe, and, and how you would possibly stand before him and his judgment, um, it, it will not be on the basis of your good works trying to say, well, I, I, I went to church on that, that Sunday in December and, and a few other times, as a matter of fact, or I, I did some good things. It was good, hashtag good deed December, and I, I did some good deeds, right? Seen that one? I, I did this stuff, and it all counts. The question will be, have you trusted in Christ alone? Do you believe that Jesus Christ took on himself the punishment you deserve for your sin, that he died in your place, a sacrificial death, substituting for you, and then rising again, defeating sin and death, so that he might now redeem you Amen. and rescue you. That's, that's the concern that John has, and that Zechariah, I think, I think on one level, Zechariah is partly thinking there's some kind of liberation here, but it's clear from what Zechariah says about John, he knows that there is salvation that the message that is most important for people to hear is the message of the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus brings that. Jesus is the one who suffered. That's why we're redeemed. So the last question now for Zechariah's hymn of praise is what's the purpose in his redeeming sinners? Look back at verse 74. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There is a, a wise and right question as we look at God's eternal plan that God would create a people who then would rebel against him, who would shake their fist in the face of the creator, and that God in his eternal plan would establish a plan to redeem, 
to rescue sinners from out of those people. And there's a legitimate question then that says, well, why? What would he rescue these people for? We know what he's rescuing them from, which is sin and death, but what is he delivering them to? And Zechariah is just as concerned to tell us that. He is delivering you so that you can serve your creator without fear and righteousness and holiness. Terms that should boggle our minds that we can serve in holiness and righteousness. Holiness being the idea of being set apart by God, uniquely chosen as his righteousness that we would have a right standing before God. And he is saying, I am delivering you to myself so that you can serve. It's interesting that uh, all of our English translations, when you get to verse 74, end with without fear, that we might serve him without fear. The Greek fearlessly is the first word in that verse. And, and as I've often pointed out to you, that the way they underline, the way they highlight, put in bold a word, is by using it first in the, the phrasing there. And so he is saying, fearlessly that you might serve God without fear. Remember, this is Zechariah speaking to his contemporaries, praising God, but speaking in the presence of his contemporaries, who certainly understood what it was like to serve under a sense of compulsion. You had the Roman government, and you knew you better do what, what Rome anticipated, what they expected of you, and you better obey, and you know that the, the emperor can be capricious, and he can send his forces on you in a heartbeat. And so their service was always done out of a sense of obligation and fear. We just need to do this, because that's what keeps us alive and, and keeps us relatively free. Zechariah is now celebrating that the men and women that God redeems will be able to serve him without fear. There's the distinction here where Scripture properly speaks of a fear of God, that we are in awe of God, we understand he is above us and transcendent and unique. That's true. But as believers in Jesus Christ, our sin has been forgiven. Our ransom has been paid. And we are able to serve him fearlessly that we are able to know that our God sent his son to die in our place so we will not experience that judgment, that punishment. And we have that confidence in him. For you and I, Zechariah's song then is just a sweet, strong assurance of what our merciful God has done to rescue us from sin and death. It is a, it is a reminder of God's promises to assure us that despite the the pressures of the world and the temptations of Satan and our own weaknesses and our own failings and our own sin and our own succumbing to temptation, that we who are trusting in Jesus Christ have been redeemed by a God who rescues, by one who sent his son and who has chosen us and bought us for himself. And he wants us to hear the echoes of this song of our forgiveness and our redemption. Think about Zechariah. I mean, here's a guy, a priest, steeped in the knowledge of God, who our first encounter with Zechariah is him, let's say it, disobeying God. In that moment of, you will have a son, and Zechariah says, I, I, don't, think that, I don't think that's possible, because we're too old, and, and he gets punished for that. And here's Zechariah now reminding us that we have been called to serve fearlessly, in righteousness and holiness, because you are 
You are chosen by him. You are called by him. You are given a right standing by him. And so when Satan and the world do everything they can to say that your service to God is worthless, that he doesn't want to hear your prayers, that you're a terrible person and you don't deserve any of this and we don't deserve any of this, it's God's grace, and that your service is stained by sin, we are reminded here that he has called us to serve fearlessly in righteousness and holiness, that we belong to him because he has ransomed us from the sin and the guilt and the shame and the death. Doesn't, doesn't mean we treat sin lightly. Paul deals with that in Romans 6. Doesn't mean we say, well, grace will abound even more. If I sin more now, I'll experience God's grace even more. It doesn't mean we, we act casually about it. But we also never forget the fundamental truth that God has rescued us from this and, and that, that call in Malachi to close the Old Testament, how the blazing holiness of God's judgment of his enemies and the promise of dawn to his people has now been fulfilled in Christ, so that now we who have experienced the shadow of death and who have experienced the darkness have been brought to light and saved so that we might serve our God fearlessly. Let's pray. Lord, we, we long to respond to you in our singing and our doing and our thoughts and our words in ways that would come right alongside Zechariah and speak of blessing you, praising you, acknowledging your good work and your merciful work in our lives. Lord, thank you for rehearsing for us in this passage, again, these sweet truths that have stood, that have been promised since all the way back in Genesis, when you promised that there would be a seed of the woman that would ultimately crush the serpent's head. You had already established then that there was coming a son of righteousness who would defeat the enemy and crush the enemy so that your people could have before them the experience of seeing shame and guilt and death and judgment put down and cast away and living in life and light righteousness and holiness as those called and chosen. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your son to redeem a people for your very own. Thank you for the privilege of being able to serve you. Thank you for the reminder that even when we are facing the, the weight of our own sin and are tempted to be bogged down in shame and we we draw back, we pull back from fellowship with you and maybe with other believers because we, we feel weighted down by our sin. Thank you for the reminder again that you are a redeeming God who longs to pour out forgiveness and who wants us to come and, and confess and repent and know the joy of the forgiveness that is complete in Christ. Thank you for that sweet fellowship that we have with you through your Son in whose name we pray, amen.